Well, we're uh, going to go right into our lesson here uh, this morning. We're in lesson number three. Can you believe that already? Just moving right along. Biblical missionaries. And uh, today and uh, this week, we've been reading and studying the unlikely mis- about the unlikely missionary. And the story is that we're going to be following here is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so turn uh, in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, if you'd be so kind. And we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, spend quite a bit of time here. And of course, as we do every, every lesson, we're going to go around the Scriptures, learn a few other things along the way. Our memory text is found in Luke chapter 4, verse 27, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It says, And many lepers were in Israel in the times of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And so we're going to be talking about Naaman and his healing and, uh, and just all that took place there. Uh, just to set the stage a little bit, um, if, if you're not too familiar with the times, the book of Kings was uh, the record uh, which records the history of the kingdom of Israel uh, from about 970 B.C. to about 550 B.C. It parallels one of the most interesting periods in the ancient Near Eastern history. This was a time when uh, Assyria was rising or had risen to power, and, uh, and its kings went out to conquer the then-known world, uh, which included, by the way, Israel and also Judah. And uh, this was for uh, the time, this was at the same time of the 21st and the 20, through to the 26th dynasty of um, Egyptian pharaohs. And of course, they were still vying for control, not only of Syria, but also of Israel. And uh, this was also the time that the Neo-Babylonian Empire when, uh, rose to power and when they, the Chaldeans and the Medes, defeated the Assyrian army and brought much of that area under their sway. And so this is the political climate that uh, we, we find when we come to this particular story. During this same time, the story of two prominent prophets emerges, and those prophets are Elijah and Elisha. If you have a hard time trying to figure out who's Elijah and Elisha, here's just an easy way to remember. Who came first, Elijah or Elisha? Elijah. Oh, yes, it was. It was Elijah, see? It was Elijah, that's right. And then who came after Elijah? It was Elisha. So Elijah, J, comes before Elisha, S. J becomes before S. And see, I'm trying to help you, and I'm trying to help myself, you see. And so, Elisha and Elijah were the prophets, a couple of the main prophets, prominent prophets uh, that we read about in the book of Kings. And uh, in the ministry in the life of Elisha, we see also a lot of similarities between his ministry, his life, and the ministry and life of Jesus. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, Elisha's servant asks him, how are we going to feed 100 people with this small portion of food? And Elisha says, just go ahead and put it before them. Essentially, the Lord's going to provide. Uh, So Elisha, fed by the miracle working power of God, fed small portions of food to large companies. Uh, Lepers were healed. Uh, under the ministry of Elisha, and of course, the dead uh, was raised as well. In this particular lesson here today, we're going to be focusing on uh, one of those stories of, the, of a cleansed and healed leper. And that's the story of a very wealthy, a very powerful army captain who was healed of leprosy. He was healed because of the witness of an unlikely missionary. 
And so uh, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Let's uh, just take it day by day as we normally do. He had it all but 2 Kings chapter 5, and uh, we're over here in verse 1. Now, it's one thing to be an unlikely missionary uh, because of your past life. And you may have read about the missionary stories of Anne and Adoniram Judson of the early 19th century. He was a cynical actor who had rejected the faith of his father and his uh, wife, uh, Anne, she was the town belle or the town beauty and she was indulged by her parents. But after a powerful uh, conversion experience and and then following a strong call to mission work, uh, they, the Judsons, were foremost in helping uh, open up the Far East to others who would then carry out the Gospel Commission. If you read their story, their story is simply inspiring. But they were unlikely missionaries because of their past life. It's another thing to be an unlikely missionary because you were taken by force from your home country and, uh, and then uh, done so during a fierce international conflict. And that's the story of the nameless Israelite maiden we find in the second book of Kings. And so we're going to read uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1 as we launch into our study here. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a leper. Now, he was uh, the captain of the uh, king's army, the captain of Syria. And Syria, if you know a little bit about that, uh, that region, Syria was the northern, uh, was a country just north of Palestine and east of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Syria never really did become a very powerful nation when compared with its contemporary nations, but it was to boast one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities of the world. And that was the city starting with D, and it was Damascus. We read about Damascus uh, often, don't we, Uh, throughout the scriptures. Now, although like every ancient city had been repeatedly conquered, it would also rise uh, from the ashes, kind of like the phoenix. Damascus was one of the strongest city-states of ancient Syria. This is uh, the Syrians or the uh, Aramaeans, and uh, they were always in conflict with Israel. That's why we read about them uh, quite a bit in, uh, in the Scriptures, because they had a lot to do with God's people. In 732 BC, it was conquered, that is Syria, and it was taken over by uh, Assyria, the Assyrian state. It's interesting that although Assyria conquered Assyria, Assyria conquered Syria politically, Syria conquered Assyrian, Assyria uh, culturally. It's very interesting. Uh, their culture and their language spread throughout the Assyrian Empire, and in the course of time, the Aramaic language became an international language, and it held sway for a, quite a long time. So at the time of this narrative here that we're reading in 2 Kings 5, Ben-Hadad, he was king of Syria, and he had defeated the armies of Israel in the battle that resulted essentially in the death of King Ahab. And since that time, the Syrians had maintained constant border raids on Israel. Now, we don't know necessarily the name of the king that's connected to this story, but many think it was the son of King Ahab, and that was Joram. Uh, Naaman, 
Let's talk about him for a bit. The Bible says he was a commander of the king's army, and he was a very successful one at that. He was very powerful, the Bible says. He was an important personage in Aramean society. Uh, The biblical account states that he was great, that he was honorable, and that he was a mighty man of valor. And if you read verse 5, it's evident that he was very wealthy. And also in verse 18 of chapter 5, uh, he was the king's right-hand man in the religious affairs of, uh, uh, of the king's religious affairs. And so I don't think we can overstate how powerful this man was in, in the Aramean society at that particular time. He was a part of the upper echelons, if we could, uh, if we could put it that way. He had everything. Did he have everything? No, the Bible says at the end of verse 1, but he was a what? He was a leper. He had everything, but he was a leper. Um, you know, it's interesting that at essentially at times of need, when people are experiencing difficulties or hardship, that they have an opening in their heart for perhaps something more than they're experiencing. And you notice that uh, throughout the scriptural record, and perhaps even in your own experience, God doesn't, uh, doesn't always protect us from harm coming to us or difficulty or challenges coming to us. Sometimes that's a way to, to cause us to look upward and recognize we need strength from on high, recognize our dependence upon God, you see. And, uh, and so it's at those particular times that, uh, that uh, we find a moment, an opening to share the goodness of God because people's hearts tend to be a little, little more open at those times. A person can have friends, a person can have job, a good job, a person can have some money, but if they don't have their health, they can't enjoy any of it. Isn't that right? I mean, Naaman's a sick man. He can't, he can't enjoy all that he's really got. It's things worrying him, and it's not a good thing at all. Leprosy wasn't, a, wasn't an ideal uh, disease to have. As a matter of fact, what disease is ideal? But he had leprosy. The account, this account teaches us several things. One, no one's wealth, no one's honor, no one's fame can put a person out of the reach of life's calamities. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't have enough stuff to keep you from it. No one is immune. And number two, uh, we all have a but, B-U-T, in our life. We might, we might be bright, but we have a temper. We might be athletic, but we lack discipline. We might be succeeding in school or in the workplace, but we might be placing all of our confidence in the wrong place in our accomplishments in ourselves rather than the God who's giving us the ability to perform and do well. The biggest problem, naturally, that we all face has to do with the fact that we are sinners. That's the big but, if I could put it that way, in our lives. It is the God's desire, however, that we recognize this problem and then in turn flee to the one who is a big Savior, and His name is Jesus. So, there are several stories in the Scripture that talk about individuals that came to Jesus for healing, and I want to read a couple of them for you. Someone has Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 to se- and 17 for us. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, they gave you a, well, that's very good, they gave you a uh, Bible verse, huh? That's fantastic. I get to hear my wife read a Bible verse. All right, Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Uh, we're going to get to you in just a moment. Let's, I want to read Mark 1, uh, verse 40. Notice there's some, there's some similarities between these stories, and uh, we want to just pull out a couple of points from these. What brought these people to Jesus? Mark 1, verse 40. Now, a leper came to him, that is Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What brought this man to Jesus? Leprosy. Okay. 
Did he recognize he had leprosy? Obviously. He recognized he had a need and he came. Okay, Luke chapter 8, verses 41 and 42. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he begged him to come to his house, for he had only uh, an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. She was dying. What was it that brought Jairus to Jesus? A need. His daughter was dying. She was 12. Come, please come and heal my daughter. It was a need. Okay, Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Jen, thanks. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Thank you very much. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus, as the, as the prophet says, took our infirmities, bore our sicknesses? What caused this multitude of people to come to Jesus? Their need. That's exactly right. The leopard, Jairus' daughter who was dying, <clears throat> the multitude were not only sick, but they recognized their plight and their need of help. It's one thing to be sick. It's another thing to say, you know what? I need, I need to be well. I need to be well. I need to be made well. Sickness, transitions, tragedies, upheavals, can make people more open to the reality of God and to open their hearts to God. Um, Jesus said, uh, he said to them, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. Only those who have a need of a savior, those who are in need of help and recognize their need, need will come to him. And God and I, if I could say this, and I've said it before, God will sometimes allow, not, not permit, he won't, he won't bring it, but he will allow sometimes things to come to a person's life so he can get their attention. If things are going too good and everything's going swimmingly and we're fine, then we're fine. We have no need of anything else. God, is, God is risks being misunderstood by allowing some things to come into people's lives in the hope in the anticipation that through those things they'll turn to him and be saved at last. That's his ultimate goal, to save individuals into his kingdom forever, you see. And so he'll allow it to come so that folk will recognize they are sinners in need of, of repentance. It's no secret that higher results in soul winning are experienced in areas where people are hurting and they don't have it all. A time is coming, and, uh, and, and there is moments in everyone's life here in, in, uh, first, in this first world country and other first world countries where people do suffer and they have challenges. But the time is coming when things are going to become far more difficult as we understand Bible prophecy. And there'll be a famine in the land of hearing the Word of God. People will want to be hungering, and, uh, and some will be hungering way too late. This is the moment to turn one's eyes to heaven and to God. Well, let's continue the story. We're going to go over to Monday's lesson, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We're talking about the unlikely missionary. We're talking about, you know, the fact of the matter is we're missionaries, are we not? We're a missionary in our home, our neighborhood, our workplace. We don't have to be traveling overseas to be a missionary. Let's read on here, 2 Kings 5, verse 2. All right, so we're told that, Na that Naaman was a leper. He was a mighty man, but he was a leper. He had a need. And it goes on to say, the account goes on to say in verse 2, And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and had brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. 
And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is in the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So what's happening here? What's going on in this story? Why would the family of the upper echelons in Syria have listened to the advice of a slave girl? And what should this tell us about our own lives that has the ability to draw others to the worship of the true God. Well, as the story uh, indicates, Syrians had been maintaining constant border raids, and unfortunately, in one of those border raids, they carried away a young girl. We don't know her name, we don't necessarily know her age, but we know that she waited upon Naaman's wife. Although she was a slave far from home, this little maid became one of God's witnesses, unconsciously fulfilling the purpose God had for her. So instead of dwelling, this is a phenomenal story, I mean, instead of dwelling upon her misfortunes and becoming bitter, her sympathies were aroused for the sad condition of her master. And uh, of course, she recollected the wonderful miracles that Elisha had performed, and so she encouraged him to go see the prophet in Israel. In, uh, it's interesting, in 2009, this is uh, just some interesting statistics, a groundbreaking study occurred and researchers found something uh, pretty interesting. This was done at Peking University and they conducted brain scans on, on Chinese and Caucasian volunteers as they watched video clips of people getting poked um, with a, a needle and it was painful. <laughs> so they were studying these, they're, they're, scan, they're scanning their brains, their brain waves, as they were watching these video clips of people receiving these painful needle jabs. And the result was interesting. The empathetic neural response, as the part in the brain that empathizes with individuals, was consistently greater when volunteers watch someone with their own racial features endure pain. Despite being held, this is, it's interesting because despite this girl, despite being held captive in a foreign country, the miracle of God's grace was working in a hard heart that led little maid to empathize with her master, one not of her race, not one of her race, because that's what God's grace does. That's what God's grace does. Why is empathy an important factor and powerful aid in our witnessing? If we, if we don't empathize or we don't have sympathy for others, then we, we don't we're not recognizing that particular need they have, and then we're not going to be reaching out to try to help and assist, isn't that right? Empathy. It's a powerful, important factor and powerful aid in our witnessing. And prejudice, whether social or whether racial or any other kind, distorts and disrupts mission. And, uh, but this young girl, it didn't matter. Here she was, foreign country, number one, away from her parents, number two, taken by force, number three, and she has a regard for the man who took her away from, essentially, from her home and um, a man from another race entirely and has compassion on him and says, you need to go see the prophet in Israel. He'll do something for you. So when we're, when we're missionaries for God and the Spirit of God gets a hold of us and the grace of God touches our hearts, it doesn't matter what social or cultural boundaries exist. We'll all 
reach out to somebody for the sake of Jesus. Isn't that right? Certainly. Empathy is a very important and powerful aid in our witnessing. A couple of verses and stories that I want to read here. Someone has Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Okay, we're going to come over to you in just a moment. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. And then, of course, we read the story about how priests and a Levi came by and they walked by him and didn't give him any consideration. But a certain Samaritan, and by the way, the story, the man who was wounded was very likely a Jew. And you know the, the conflict and the hostility that existed between the Jews and Samaritans in the times, time of Jesus. And this Samaritan, as he was journeying, came where he was, and the Bible says, this is the story Jesus was telling him, when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Compassion on him. He, em- he empathized. If he were in the same predicament, he'd want help as well. Doesn't matter what, uh, what man gives him, the, uh, gives him the aid, as long as he gets the help. This man's empathy cut through any cultural barriers or any hate that might have existed in the heart of this Samaritan, and he could have easily justified it. Look at the way the Jews treat me. Look at the way the Jews treat my family. But he didn't consider that. He helped him. He had compassion. Acts chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. You remember uh, uh, Cornelius is, uh, sends individuals to Peter, and Peter's supposed to come to Cornelius, and uh, Cornelius is a Gentile. And Peter has a problem, a race problem. He has a, he's a bit of a bigot. And God sends him a dream, this vision, three times to teach him something very important. And talking to the, uh, the individuals that came to call for Peter, he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. So he's talking to the family. He says, I came, irrespective of who you are, what your race is, what your social status is, doesn't matter, coming, because God has sent me to you. And that's what the missionary spirit does in the hearts of God's people. Just go, we just go, we do. Doesn't matter what they look like, where they've been, where they might be at that point, doesn't matter. We just go, we share the message. Notice Acts chapter one and verse eight. Thank you. Acts one, verse eight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' call. Thank you. Jesus' call for his church, for you and I, is to go where? Everywhere. Everywhere. Even parts of of, of shady Sacramento, wherever the shady part of your town is, um, to share the love of God, the grace of Jesus, to go to the ends of the world. That's what missionaries do, because they have the, the, heart of, the heart of God. The heart of God is a missionary heart. He sent his son into this hostile world, didn't he? And uh, to do what? To save us. And God's people at the call of God will go where he asks them to go. You know, if anyone had an excuse to be angry, anyone had an excuse to be prejudiced, it was this little servant girl, but she wasn't. Instead, like Joseph and Daniel, she stood tall for God in this pagan nation and in this pagan home. And uh, we're told in, in Prophets and Kings that it was her conduct and it was how she bore herself in that home that endeared that family to her. And that's why they listened. She was helpful. She was cheerful. She was kind. She was tactful. She was courteous. Oh, man, if, if, if God's people were just a little more courteous, we are encouraged that where there is one convert, there would be 100. If we were just a little more courteous, 
And it was her conduct and how she bore herself in that home that endeared her to that family. And that caused Naaman to accept her advice. And so he went. I mean, it's powerful. A young girl influencing the most, one of the most powerful men among the Arameans. And he goes. And because he went, he was healed. I want to read this from Prophets and Kings. Uh, this is for mums and dads. Happy are the parents whose lives are a true reflection of the divine so that the promises and commands of God awaken in the child gratitude and reverence. The parents whose tenderness and justice and long-suffering interpret to the child the love and justice and long-suffering of God and who by teaching the child to love and trust and obey them are teaching him to love and trust and obey his Father in heaven. And then she closes, parents who impart it to the child as a, such a gift have endowed him or her with a treasure more precious than the wealth of all the ages, a treasure as enduring as eternity. You can imagine that, I mean, you look at the, the life of this young maiden girl, slave girl, you've got to imagine what type of parent she had for her to be so faithful and, uh, and dedicated to the true God. But she bore witness in that home, and because of that, uh, the man wasn't just healed, we'll We'll talk more about it as we go along. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson, Elisha the prophet. We're going to jump back to 2 Kings chapter 2 and uh, read a few verses back here. The ministry of Elisha extended over 50 years because we're coming to the part in the story in 2 Kings where Naaman is sent to that prophet, and that prophet is Elisha. So let's just look at Elisha just for a moment. His ministry extended about 50 years, and it was conducted mostly as the head of the school of the prophets. And so essentially, Elisha's ministry was a public ministry, traveling and teaching and blessing God's people. And, uh, and certainly it did, because both kings and, and everyday people appreciated the ministry of Elisha. What can we learn about Elisha from his initial call to the prophetic office and how, does that, how would that apply to our call to ministry, each one of us? Because when we're born into the kingdom of heaven, we're born as missionaries, we're told in the book Desire of Ages. We're born missionaries for Jesus, uh, workers for Him. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and on. It came to pass, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And this happened three times. Elisha, Elijah says, God's called me here, stay right here, and, uh, and you know, and you'll be fine. And Elisha said, mm -mm, no, 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 I'm going with you. I'm going to follow you. God has called me to follow in your footsteps, so I'm going to go. Three times, Elijah says, stay, please. But Elisha says, no, not going to do that. And uh, it's interesting, in verse 5, Now the sons of the prophets were at Jericho. They came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master for, from over you today? And so he answered, Yes, I know, keep silent. So the thing hadn't just been revealed to Elisha that Elijah was going to be taken up to heaven. Also, the, the student prophets, uh, the sons of the prophets, uh, had, uh, were also uh, had, were privy to this. And about 50 men stood, this is verse 7, and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken up from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. 
And so he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken up from you, it shall be for you, so for you, but if not, it shall not be. Then it happened as they continued on and talked with that, talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elijah, Elisha rather, crossed over. It's amazing. Call of Elisha. Elisha had been called to follow in the footsteps of Elijah. He was going to take the place of Elijah when Elijah was to be taken up. It's an interesting story, and there's so many things that I'd like to talk with you about about the story, but just a few things that I want to highlight here about his call to the prophetic office. Number one, he was asked to stay by Elijah, but Elisha would not stay. And essentially, it was a test of Elisha's fidelity and loyalty to the call that God had given him. That's number one. Uh, number two, Elisha was convinced of his calling. There was no questions asked. He was absolutely convinced, irrespective of the, uh, irrespective of the, the, the challenges that might occur in his, in his following in the footsteps of Elijah. And then number three, Elisha, like Solomon before him, expressed his deepest need, not of wealth, not of power, not of, of, of wealth or possessions, but spiritual power that was necessary to discharge aright the solemn responsibilities that God had called Elisha to. What did he pray for? He says, he asked Elijah, what can I do for you? What, can you give me a double portion? Now, he wasn't asking to be more powerful than Elijah. He wasn't asking for a, 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 a double uh, let, me, let me see if I can put it right here. He wasn't asking for to be more powerful or for more of the Holy Spirit than Elijah had. He was asking for a double portion, much like the oldest son of a family would receive a double portion of the, of the father's inheritance. So if there was two boys, uh, they would be divided and uh, the boy would get double the portion of the, the oldest boy would get double the portion of the youngest, you see. And so what Elisha was asking for was a double portion as your son following in your footsteps, so to speak, give me a double portion of, of your spirit. I wasn't asking for more of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Elijah couldn't give it anyway, but you can't give more of the Holy Spirit when you're filled with it. And, uh, and certainly a father can't give more of his wealth or inheritance to his children than he actually has. And so he asked for a double portion. He wanted the, the Spirit of God to rest upon him so he could fulfill his responsibilities with, with, um, with grace and faithfully, you see. Someone has John chapter 15, verse 5. I'm going to have you read that for us. All right, Diana, thank you. When God calls us to service, He calls us to Himself. What does God do? He calls us to do what? To serve. We're all to serve. Is any one of us not called to serve? Raise your hand. Anyone called not to serve? All right, if you raise your hand, we'll talk afterwards. We're all called. We're all called to serve. We're all called to serve Jesus with the respective gifts and talents that He's given us. Each one of us has different gifts and talents. And often the foundation, the foundation to a strong life of witness is laid by these same three things. Number one, a test of our sincerity. God often will come to us and say, I'm calling you, and he'll open up an opportunity for us to test our sincerity when we've said, yes, Lord, I'll go. 
And he says, okay, if you're going to go, here it is. Here's an opportunity for you. And sometimes we don't always get it right, do we? We sometimes just pull back and say, "Mm, maybe not right now, Lord. God's testing our sincerity, testing our our, our fortitude, whether we really want to go through with with it or not. Number two, God will often give us an evidence of his call on our lives. God calls you to a particular ministry, calls you with those gifts he's given you. You're going to see fruit. You're going to see evidence. You're going to see something good happen with the gifts that God has given you as you employ them, as you engage them in ministry. And then thirdly, the foundation to a strong life of witness is laid by the recognition of our need of supernatural strength to fulfill the mission that God has given us. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 15, verse 5. Thanks, Diana. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Mm -hmm. So Elisha's life, thank you very much. Elisha's life was a humble one and, and a powerful one. And he depended upon Jesus, and that's our call too, to depend on Jesus. Without staying connected to the vine, you and I can't really accomplish much of anything for the master. Our success comes in our connection, how close we are to the Savior, you see. So Elisha's life was, life was humble, and so, you know, it must have been a very interesting thing when Naaman and his entourage showed up at his little home there. And uh, we're going to go into that story. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's continue the, the narrative chapter 5, verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away. By the way, we've got to back up here a little bit. What happened? Did Elisha come out to greet Naaman? Elisha didn't come out. He actually just sent out his servant. And the the servant told him to do what? Go and wash in the rivers of Damascus? No. Go and wash in the Jordan River. And they all knew that the rivers, other rivers up there were a lot cleaner and they were nicer. But the Jordan River was muddy. It was a little dirty. And so, uh, you know, Naaman was offended on a couple of points. He was offended because Elisha didn't come out to greet him. I mean, how dare he? Does he, know who, does he know who I am? Doesn't come out. And then he tells me to go wash in the dirty... What does he think he is? I mean, the story tells us that he had hoped that, uh, that Elisha would come out and just wave his hand over the area and perform some type of magic trick and the thing would be gone from him, you see. But it didn't happen. So let's look at verse 11. But Naaman became furious. He went away indeed, he said to himself... Uh, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great, something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman was not impressed with his reception, neither was he impressed with the instructions he received for healing. Essentially, it was pride that led Naaman to discard or disregard the prophet's counsel counsel initially. What's pride? It's been defined defined as a high or inordinate inordinate opinion of oneself, of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether it's cherished in the mind or displayed in the bearing or conduct. The synonyms of pride are conceit, self-esteem, egotism, vanity, vainglory, and they all imply an unduly favorable idea of one's own appearance, advantages, and achievements. 
and often apply to offensive characteristics of the person. Pride is lofty. Pride is often arrogant at the assumption of one's superiority. Naaman's faith essentially was being tested and uh, while his pride was struggling for the supremacy. I'm just mentioning all of this because there are lessons we can learn when it comes to the plan of salvation. We're told in Prophets and Kings, page 249, but by faith, rather, but faith conquered, and the Syrian yielded his pride of heart, and he bowed in submission to the revealed will of Jehovah. He wrestled with that. He said, I don't know if I'm going to do that. But he decided to go. And after he went and submitted his way to God, he dipped down into that Jordan River seven times. When he came up the seventh time, the Bible says that his leprous skin was now as soft as a young boy's skin. You know, it might be hard for us to appreciate the transformation that he underwent, the change that he experienced. Here was a man who was going to die, and now he's going to live. He was going to die, and now he's going to live. Is there anything we can learn about the plan of salvation and how you and I can benefit from salvation in this particular story. After all, we all need to know what our standing with God is, amen? Certainly. And secondly, if we're going to be God's missionaries, we need to know how to present the plan of salvation to others, right? Truly. The deepest longing of the human heart is expressed in the words of Job, chapter 25 and verse 4. And while I'm going to read that, someone has John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Mike, fantastic, thank you going to come to you in just a moment. Job 25 verse 4, the longing of the human heart is, how then can a man be justified with God, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? That's the, the cry of the human heart. You see, my motives, your motives are tainted with selfishness. Our thoughts often travel in forbidden paths, and everything that we seem to do is for our own benefit and betterment, not for the good of others. I'm unclean, I'm dirty, I'm a sinner. So how can I be made clean? First is acknowledging, right? Acknowledging that one needs to be cleaned. What did, what did John write in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9? But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ does what? Cleanses us from all sin. Now notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here it is. One must recognize the need. One must fall at the feet of the Savior, confessing their sins, saying, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, confessing. And what does the Bible say? You're forgiven. Forgiven, washed clean. Powerful, powerful. But it's not just the forgiveness of sins that takes place. Something else happens in the heart when we come to Jesus. And Mike, you have John 3, verses 3 through 5. John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Thank you very much. So with forgiveness, what, what accompanies forgiveness? A new heart, a new heart, just like Naaman came out of that water with skin like a what? Like a, like a child. When you and I give our lives to Jesus and plunge deep in the blood of Christ, we emerge as newborn babes, cleansed, healed, forgiven, with new hearts. The answer to the question of salvation is found in none other than Jesus. Amen? Amen. None other than Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. And while he shed his blood for us, 
It does us no good if we don't daily appropriate its power, like the blood that was applied to the doorpost and the lintel uh, there in Egypt when, uh, during the Passover, when God's, uh, the, the angel of death passed over through the land. The blood must be applied daily. We must accept what Christ did for us and then allow him to change us each and every day, right? And that's what happened to, to Naaman. Look over here, Second Kings. We're going into Thursday's lesson. We, did, we just did Wednesday's lesson. I didn't tell you, but we just did Wednesday's lesson. Thursday, a new believer. That's what happened. He was changed. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 15. Someone has Luke chapter 4 verse 27. I'm going to come to that in just a moment. Luke chapter 4 and verse 27. Okay, Ray, thank you. We're going to come to you in just a sec. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 15. Notice what happened. It says here in verse 15, so he was cleansed, verse 15, and he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Was Naaman a changed man? Naaman was a changed man. He was no longer going to worship and serve those other gods, but he had given his life and allegiance to now the God of Israel, the true God, as he calls him here. Years later, we know he was a changed man because years later, Jesus commended the faith and humility of Naaman. And that's in Luke chapter 4, verse 27. Ray, thank you. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Nathan the Syrian, Naaman the Syrian. Wonderful, thank you. Now, I know there's a question. Richard, you have a question for us? We're going to come to you in just a second here. It's related to verses 18 and 19. But I want you to notice, Jesus commended the faith of Naaman. Commended the faith of Naaman. This man was a changed man. His body was healed. He was converted in spirit. His life was tending in this direction. Conversion just means that now you're going in a completely different direction in the way and path of Jesus Christ, you see. The motives are changed. The heart is being changed. We haven't got all our act together, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but things have changed dramatically. Not the same as we were before, you see. Out of all the lepers of that time, not one of faith, not one of, not one of the faith of Israel received healing except this pagan. Why? Because he was the only one who trusted God's ways, his plan of salvation, and obeyed him. That's, that's what happened. There are more things that we can learn about God's plan of salvation and its effects it has on those who receive it gladly. In this story, we just read the verse, Naaman gave thanks for his deliverance. True conversion is revealed itself, is revealed, it reveals itself in thanksgiving. And it's expressed, number two, he expressed his gratitude in giving a free will offering. Those that have been saved by God's grace will, will freely give of their time, their talents, and their treasures. Number four, three, he was conscientious of the effects of his witness that his witness would have on others. And then we also realize, number four, he had some growing to do. And it comes to our question in verse, uh, for 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Thanks, Richard. Pastor Chris, how can we understand the words of Naaman to Elisha and Elisha's response in 2 Kings 5, 18 and 19? So let's read that together. That's a great question. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. So Naaman was trying to offer him these gifts. Elisha said, no, it's okay. God is the one who healed you, not me. And uh, <clears throat> later on, you've got the story of Elisha's servant Gehazi and his greed. But he's a changed man. And Elisha refuses the gifts. Verse 17, 
and 18, yet in this thing, this is verse 18, yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, that is the king of Syria, and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And so he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. If the question is often asked, if he was truly a converted man, then how is it that he is found in the temple of Rimmon bowing down with his king? How is it possible? Naaman was a new convert. There's no questioning that. He truly was. And as a new convert, he had to do what? Had to grow. The Bible says that we're born, we're born again. We're born as babies, you see, in the faith. And then what happens? We've got some growing up to do. We need to drink the milk and then we need to eat some meat, some food, and we need to grow. Our faith needs to be developed, you see. And, uh, and he had some growing to do and God was going to give him strength and God was going to give him wisdom if he held on to his newfound faith. God leads his children. We need to remember, God leads his children step by step and he knows the perfect moment to call for reform in a particular area. And, if we, need to, and we all need to keep that in mind when we labor for others' salvation. Elisha knew that this wasn't the moment to insist on some drastic change in his lifestyle at that moment. He was being tactful and he was being prudent and we must always be as well when dealing with others. We need to allow people to grow, allow Jesus to work those things out in people's lives, pointing them to Jesus, trusting in him, holding on to him. This is a powerful story. One unlikely missionary taken from a home country expresses faith in God, even in, under those adverse circumstances. Witnesses of her God, the man goes at her, at her uh, encouragement. Man's healed, not only physically, but he's, he's healed spiritually. The best type of healing a person can experience. And God wants to send you and he wants to send me out as well. God wants us to be witnesses for him wherever we are, under whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, and to whoever he leads us to share his plan of salvation. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to do and to dare for God? I am too. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.